right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Craig Davidson here, Taurus Agricultural Marketing. Uh, welcome to uh, another version of our Taurus Agronomic Bites. Uh, this is a, a continuation in our series of what we have called the, the 100 Bushel Club. You know, our last uh, podcast was Ken King and, and more focus on canola. Uh, obviously, a great uh, conversation. Today, we're looking to extend that with a little more emphasis on on pulses and, and what we're calling the next human protein crop. We're uh, glad to have with us this morning, uh, Megan Rose, New Era Ag Research, and Ryan, Ryan Imaker with RSI Consulting and uh, New Era Ag, as well as Mike Delinsky, who's been a part of most all our, our podcasts and uh, uh, glad to have him on here again this morning. Um, I'll maybe let uh, Megan and Ryan introduce themselves, and then we'll actually get into uh, into our conversation this morning. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Craig. Um, I have to admit this is my first podcast, so I got Kelly to get me a fancy headset here. I feel like this is working <laughs> at Hortons, maybe. Uh, but, uh, you look look good. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm... Uh, I'm owner of RSI Agri-Coaching. I started with AgriTrend over 10 years ago and on my own now consulting. Um, seven years ago, I, I partnered with Dennis Badowski. We started New Era Ag Technologies. It's a independent retail. And with that, two years after starting that, we found Megan and uh, we started New Era Ag Research. And uh, it's been a lot of cool and exciting things happened since then. And Megan's business and the, the retail have grown exponentially over that time. And, uh, yeah, we, we started the retail uh, research business for the reason of just trying to explore and understand products on the market and, uh, and what's possible in the Swan River Valley, like uh, for our growing area. That's, that was the main reason for starting it, just to understand how these products worked in the Swan Valley, because we all know things work a little different everywhere in the, across the prairies and in the world. So uh, we've we've learned a tremendous amount, and um, yeah, it's 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 snowballing for sure. Um, Megan can maybe talk a little bit of, a little bit more on introduce her when she introduces herself on what we're we're doing and things we things things that we're doing and, and what we're doing. So yeah, go ahead, Megan. Uh, yeah, happy to be on the podcast, and yeah, this is a first a new thing for me as well. So, um, New Era Ag Research, as Ryan said, started in 2016. Um, we do both small plot uh, research trials as well as field scale, um, which I'll show you guys or talk a little bit about um, some of the research that we've done in peas and fabas over the years. Um, we work in not just uh, pulses, but nine different crops from uh, hybrid fall rye. Uh, we do a lot of work in quinoa, um, canola. Uh, we work with uh, nine different breeding programs in screening their yield trial, uh, their advanced yield trial material. Um, yeah, and we've just been kind of growing since uh, every year. Uh, there's more more projects to do, so um, I think what I've learned in the last few years is how it's really important to do on-farm trials and, and collecting information for our, our valley is uh, really unique. Um, 
And not only is there differences just for our valley, but for field to field, farm to farm, and, and doing your own on-farm on trials is really valuable. So, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. You know what? I mean, it's uh, <clears throat> never too late to learn something new. So for Ryan and uh, Megan, glad this, this is your first uh, kick at the podcast world and we're, we're glad to <laughs> glad to have you on so um you know i i would actually we we appreciate the feedback too so if you're on watching or listening you do have an opportunity to ask questions throughout and we'll try to get to those uh, as we go through our conversation if we don't get to them uh, through the conversation we'll get to them at the end or if we can't uh if we run out of time then we'll actually uh follow up with an email of uh, answers to the questions that, that you had asked throughout. So obviously today uh, we have a very technical uh, panel, obviously. So, you know, I, I'm a podcast guy. Mike is, Mike's likes his webinars. So we, I've, I call this a webcast. It's kind of somewhere in the middle. We got, we got quite a few slides that, that we're going to show too, because it's, uh, you know, we're actually dialing in. We're we're going to talk about peas and sabas and, and the hundred bushel mindset, and it's definitely there. It's real. And you know, it's this is today. The conversation is about what do we need to do? What are what are some of the things we absolutely have to look at if we want to focus on these types of target yields? Uh, and what are some of the challenges or limitations that's probably going to hold us back from from actually getting there? So. So uh, buckle in, good conversation that we uh, plan to have. And, and uh, yes, there will be some, some reference slides here today to, uh, to give you a little bit more information as opposed to just, just general conversation. So I'll start with you, Mike. And, uh, you know, when you, when you lay the framework, you know, you, you get, you know, you've been in this business for, I'm not going to date you, but you've been in this business for call it decades. You know, how, how, you know, you probably get piles of questions when it comes to crop production. When you look at things like pulses, specifically peas in this case, what are some of the aspects that you, you're going to say we need to bring into consideration to focus on, you know, a high yield, high target yield crop here? Well, the one thing about peas uh, that is probably to their downfall is they have a, a relatively small rooting system compared to many of our crops. They don't go down very deep, so they're, they're mostly folks in the top foot, like like many plants, but they don't have a lot of a lot of depth in many ways, and they're very sensitive to salinity, uh, to tell the honest truth, and and they're also very sensitive to uh, to toxins in this in the seed row because they have a very thin seed coat, and the, both the seed coat can be damaged. So I'm a big believer, like in, in many crops, it, it's a total balanced package of nutrition and management so so for some of these that to me are key are, are always seed quality you know and, and this seeding rate and and i think maybe megan can talk about this and the, uh, the data such that somewhere around seven to nine plants per square foot is, is key and good quality seed is really important you know all of these factors here are, are not going to be new to 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 folks on this uh, maybe go back uh, craig uh, for a sec on, on the yield, I'll just cover those. You know, uh, pH, uh, just a few quick comments for guys. You know, maybe it's worthwhile spending a few minutes on this because a lot of guys, uh, is maybe in Manitoba, with the development of the uh, uh, the pea protein extraction systems, 
that are coming on and, and the industries that are developing are going to be maybe first time peat growers. So pH is key. They don't really like high pHs to tell you the honest truth uh, uh, in many, many cases. And, and I mentioned salinity. They don't like salinity. They don't like wet feet at all. Bees do not like being submerged in water for any length of time. And it's also been one of the major causes of aphenomyces, which is a, a real nightmare for that whole pea lentil uh, regime that is going on. So for me, the, the key ones are, are, are basic <clears throat> agriculture, good quality seed, proper seeding, uh, proper nutrition. And uh, nutrition is always the problem for most of our problems or, or most of our crops. Uh, guys are cutting back. We're producing more yield per acre at a faster rate. Plants are having to pull more nutrient faster and we're depleting our soil slowly over time. And that's, that's a, a, a real problem as far as I'm concerned. So I think when we get into the details, uh, it'll be more important. There is one key thing for, for new beginners on, on peas. Peas take a lot of water to germinate, they're a big seed. It takes a lot of water to germinate that seed. And one of the key problems you can face is if you don't see deep enough and you get partially through germination and the plant runs out of water, that's a serious problem. So with peas, you can see them quite deep because the seed stays below ground. It doesn't move the cotyledons above ground. So most guys seed early because they're quite frost tolerant. And if you freeze off the top, they'll branch out, but the, the, the seed remains below ground. So it's quite, uh, quite tolerant to, to severe frost. But if it partially germinates and doesn't get fully uh, imbibed with water, it's a real serious problem. So the general rule is seed to water. Seeding early is good, but you don't want to really seed it into dry land as far as I'm concerned. I would That's say, Mike- we'll, we'll talk about later, but go ahead, Ryan. I would say, Mike, too, if I was to prioritize on that list uh, there, I know some people might argue, might argue this, but next to water, my next thing, low-hanging fruit that really affects yield is weeds, I find. If you don't have a proper, if, if they're so such a poor competitor at the start of their life. Um, if you have, if you don't have a clean field or you don't keep fields clean, you don't do a pre-seed burnoff and a post-seed burnoff, these are, these are easy things that you can control that make a big difference to start your year off. If you have a bad weedy field, a dirty field, you could do all the fertility work you want and it, it just, it's not going to produce the way you want. You're going to be disappointed. You need to start off right. Like you said, obviously a stand is great, but the, the, the weeds will affect the, the plant stand as well, right? Like and how, and how that, that grows. So I, I've noticed over my years scouting these fields, if, if you can't, don't, don't pick a, a field with tough to kill weeds. Like you're limited a little bit on what you can use for chemical and in, in pulses too. So keep mm -hmm. that in mind if you have, you know, real tough, heavy buckwheat and things like that, that these are, these are things that uh, are dandelions and weeds or perennial weeds. It, it can have a huge effect on yield right off the, right out of the gate. So I yeah. wanted to make that point. So you're, uh, I guess you're probably, <clears throat> probably alluding to rotation in that mindset too then, Ryan, as part of a strategy yeah. to, uh, to uh, manage or control weeds. For sure. And, and you know, uh, all sorts. Of, there's all sorts of products in the market, but everyone's weed spectrum is a bit different. But I think if you don't be afraid to spend money on chemical on, on, for with peas, for sure. Like whether it be Edge or 
you know, a post seat of heavy rate of heat. Or there's there's lots of different options, but I would say it's money well spent when it comes to most pulses. So this is a good side to summarize all this for for people who are just on the podcast. This will be posted. There are a few slides here that sort of outline all the key ones, and and that one is. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because the the trick with any any plant that nodulates a soybean or, or any of the legumes, besides being you know tough to get going early, they run into a a, a nutrient deficiency and a growth um, sort of problem because when they're starting to nodulate, they're using a lot of that energy. So if you don't have the the weeds controlled the weeds will overrun them because there's a period of time where they're slow growing as they're building those nodules and growing all that vegetative period. Yeah. It's really critical. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. We'll maybe come back to that. We, yeah. we got a slide that uh, we'll talk to that specifically, but and Megan's done some research on, on weed control in peace. We'll maybe let her mention that here quickly. Uh, I just, I didn't do the research myself, but I did uh, do a little bit of Google research, and um, the Saskatchewan Pulse Growers had some good information about the critical weed-free period for for peas. Um, it's not established for faba beans, which I was surprised, but I think we can kind of extrapolate it would be similar, being that they're also a pretty low competitive crop. But um, one week after emergence uh, was when the critical weed-free period started, which is that's the that's pretty quick. Like you're not probably going to be going in there with your in-crop um, herbicide application one week after emergence. So to have something that's clean from that point, uh, to have a clean field from that point on is, is important. So There's a question here while we're on the topic, you know, as a pre-seed emerge, what, what chemistry would you look at, you know, or what have you used in your experience, Ryan, as a, for, for peas specifically, well, edge is edge is expensive, but it does work well, and it and it doesn't require a rainfall to activate it most times. It, it does help, but you know, uh, I find a heat, a heavy rate of heat, has works great. You just need a little bit of rain. I find it hangs on longer than you'd expect too. Like the the photo degradation isn't as bad as they might claim, but mm -hmm. it it certainly helps with volunteer canola. We have a hard time with that here in, in the valley, like. Mm -hmm. it's 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 a terrible weed in, in, in pulses right at the start because it, it germinates so quickly and it can take over so fast and you're limited to the amount of times and and the, and the timing when you can spray viper and different products like that too so it's not a liberty or a roundup where you can just keep nailing it yeah. over and over again and, and that kind of thing so uh, but uh i would say my advice is just i don't really know the weeds that you're dealing with but um I guess the, the, the takeaway is don't be afraid to spend money on weed control post and pre-emergent products in peas. It's ROI is huge when it comes to, to uh, growing pulses. It, it, it's the best money you'll spend next to fertilizer for sure. Or I would even claim before fertilizer if, if, you, if you, or just don't pick a proper field too. Again, don't pick a, a field full of wild oats and group one resistant wild oats for sure, right? Because you're then you're hamstringing yourself again right out of the gate so um yeah yeah i would say you know this is a good conversation around weed control and chemistry i, I would put a caveat in here in, in my mindset because essentially we are talking about human food here at this point right i mean we are 
you know, you think of the history of pulses and how it's grown. I mean, lentils have always been that case, but today coming to North America and we're talking now we got pea processing to human food, either in sports drinks or, you know, stuff that looks like meat or whatever. But I think we're going to see a, a lot more critical eye on how these crops are actually being grown and produced. And then in things like chemistries, because we've seen it in other crops like oats where no, we can't spray glyphosate as a harvest management tool. You know, I'm going to question moving forward, you know, what are our options going to be when it comes to chemistries? If in fact, these say peat crops are growing for, for uh, protein, but, but ultimately for human, human consumption. And that's, that's something we got to be cognizant of as, as agronomists and, and people in the, in the industry moving forward, Absolutely. which is also another another great challenge that we're probably going to be presented with when, you know, as Ryan mentioned, how important it is to, to manage and control weeds early. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, Megan. protein as well in, in our peas as best we can. I think you did some work on that that we'll probably get to later. Yeah. One quick question, Megan, when it comes to uh, your research plots, you know, in, in, in Mike's slide, and if you don't, can't see the the podcast obviously it mike's referencing a wide range of seeding depth you know anywhere from one to four but basically focus on chasing the moisture that you know which is good for peas and your research plots historically how deep have you been seeding your your peas we're going about an inch and a half to two um trying to stay stay in that obviously you want to hit the moisture and then once you roll it to I don't know if it's our opener or how it is, but we always seem to get a lot deeper once once it's rolled. So I'm hesitant to the actual seeding depth when we're checking it to go too deep, um, just because we do have that extra crust to get through. And I I always question that too when we're talking about seeding depths with soybeans or or um, peas because what what is that at the at the time of seeding or is that after you roll it because it makes can make a huge difference. So. Um, I've never had yeah. an issue chasing moisture with peas. Usually we're in early enough that we don't have to go too deep. I find it more it's a problem when we're chasing the moisture for soybeans. Then it, okay. that's, yeah. that's a different issue, but yeah. yeah. Most of the time it isn't a problem because guys seed peas so early. So there is whatever moisture is there is generally there in the, in the upper surface. And, and you're right, you, you seed as shallow as you can because you want to get it up and, and growing. For guys that that are looking at this issue, I mean, potassium becomes very, very important to to any growth in the plant in terms of hydraulic pressures that it puts on to grow that that seed. So, if you're going to see deep, you want to make sure your potassium levels, in my opinion, are are pretty adequate in that top. So, and in most soils where you get minimum potassium levels in the top three inches are pretty adequate. So, you know, the peas are yeah. in a good position to grow. I. Uh... I have a reference here and if you can't see it, but you know, this is nutrient concentration and seed. And this is something that we're, we have a lot of emphasis and focus on right now at Taurus and, and Mike's doing a lot of work on it. And, uh, you know, we believe, you know, the day you put your seed in the ground is you can never get that day back. So you have to start with a, a very high quality seed. And, but we also believe there's a direct correlation to nutrient concentration of the seed and how strong or how vigorous that seed actually is. And, and some research we're doing right now with 2020 uh, and Bayer and, and uh, looking at some other seed lots is going to help us define that. But 
one thing that jumps out at us when we look at, at peas, obviously a very high seeding rate. Most most growers are going at three bushels an acre. Is that fair, Ryan? Is that what most of your recommendations yeah. are at? Depending on thousand kernel weights, but yeah, yeah we, we yeah. try and target that. Yeah, like it's it'll be between three and four. Some of these seeds are getting pretty big. Like there's some varieties like Abarth, they have like jumbo seed, and it the seeding rate does go up to try and get that desired plant count of you know eight plants. Per <laughs> so it, it is. They are. There's a big difference. I think a lot of that yield with the Abarth does come from the, actually the size of that seed. It is significantly larger on some varieties. So it's just funny yeah. that uh, I think they're finding that the protein on some of these varieties are which does kind of make sense, are are a bit lower too. They might not be the most attractive for these protein plants. So okay. I, th- I think that goes hand Which, in hand with, with anything that you're looking for protein, like wheat yield and and, and uh, protein as well, right? So it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. The higher the yield, the, hard, the harder it is to bring the protein yep. along with it, right? So it's, uh, yeah, I would argue, yeah, you talk four bushels, call it a 60-pound bushel crop, Four bushels, you're talking uh, 240 pounds of material, and you could be putting on more pea seed than you are yeah, nutrition, you which is which is crazy, right? It's some, uh, some, some pretty big, pretty big eye rolls when it when it comes to trying to recommend that from customers. It's kind of like <laughs> then you want to get into faba beans as well. We can get some huge faba bean seed sometimes, and it's it's almost like you said, logistics. Trump agronomy, sometimes you just can't get that seed on. It, it, it plugs the drill, and it's just kind of can be a nightmare seeding, to be honest. So, Yeah. So a well, quick point here, you know, obviously nutrient concentration in the seed is important at that seeding rate. I mean, I think that we did the math at one time. You could be applying as much as 8 to 10 pounds of phosphorus an acre just in pea seed alone with the phosphorus con- con- or concentration in the seed. So... It, you know, you talk about nutrient importance in the seed, peas especially, because your seeding rate, if you're low in one of these nutrients, phosphorus, uh, you know, it's a huge, it loads a huge amount of potassium into the seed coat. Um, so I, I would say it's, we're talking 100 bushels here. To get there, I'd say let's start with actually doing a nutrient analysis of your seed. I think that's important because if, if it's actually short, there we have agronomic tools to shore that up. I mean, we can add nutrient dressings. It's not like you're you're left in the dark here. You say, well, if it's a little bit low, let's let's shore that up before we actually even put it in the ground. Right. And I think you have to be be aware of you know, seed place potassium with with most pulses is not an easy thing to deal with. You, you shouldn't do it actually. <laughs> the potassium chloride and the it, it, they're not a good mix. So you're looking at other ways, side banding or broadcasting. Um, the salt yeah. mix of potassium chloride is, is, is one of the yeah. big reasons why it doesn't fit well in a in a in a seed row with a, a something like peas. Right. And then I think yeah, I worry a little bit about uh, the inoculant too as well, the how the survivability without that salt in the seed row too. So Yeah. So you make a you make a great point and kind of the next phase of our conversation here is really to talk about about nutrition and fertility and the demands that this crop has. And this is, yeah, you, you brought it up to, to, to a T here. I mean, a high, very high, and I'll show you this, a very high nutrient using crop, one of the highest we'll actually grow in our broad spectrum crops in Western Canada. And yet, inevitably, we run into this conversation on seed safety. And I, and I truly believe peas, no different than soybeans, 
They are a crop that absolutely loves fertility. They need a lot of fertility, but they really don't like fertilizer. They don't like fertilizer because fertilizer is basically nutrients with salt. I always mention this. So I think it's part of our responsibility if we're targeting 100. We've got to make sure the fertility is either in the soil or we're adding fertility as nutrients, but not adding fertilizer that could actually harm or injure this, this crop early in its days. And phosphorus is an issue. You mentioned potassium. It's, it's such a huge potassium user, but it doesn't like potassium chloride. So what, what do we do? Right? We, we're heavily focused on that at Taurus to try to find options like, like a crystal green or a sulfur plus. Uh, or, you know, we're going to talk about polysulfate in the, in the coming months, but, you know, options that actually have very low salt index so we can actually address fertility when, when we actually plant and grow these crops. Uh, and it doesn't stop with, you know, the demand of the macros. I mean, Mike will reference the importance of some of these key micros and, and actually the overall functionality of, of a pulse plant and, and all the way down to, to nutrients like moly. And you say, well, who cares about molly? But, you know, it actually has a direct correlation to, to nitrogen. I'll let Mike mention that quickly as we, as we move through these, these talking points. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of these are important. And, and you know, a lot of people don't think of it, but, but how zinc, boron, molly are important. Molly is involved in breaking down that nitrogen. Uh, Adam, so so without without the plant without that the can't actually fix nitrogen well. But you guys in in say Swan River high pH where you have uh, probably a adequate molly molly is one of the micros that uh, that actually becomes less available as the pH goes down. So it's a concern in in, in more acid soils. But uh, one of the one of the key ones is boron. Zinc is needed by every plant. A farmer should never let his plants run short of zinc. Never. He shouldn't let his plants run short of any of these nutrients. But zinc is in all the key enzyme groups in the plant and, and key for stress management, just like, like us. If you guys are all watching COVID stuff, you know that vitamin D and zinc are kind of the two mm, materials you want to have lots of in your system, not to be toxic, to prevent it. But I'll just give you an example quick. For example, when a plant is, is building the nodules, I'm a believer that boron has to be there throughout the life of the plant and, and that it feeds through soil and and when you're you're putting on a foliar you're you're sort of touching it up you're not solving uh, a, a nutrient problem but when the plant builds the nodule and for folks that aren't familiar with that the plant builds the nodule not the bacteria so it has to restructure and build all those cells in the nodule and that takes a lot of calcium and boron and and phosphorus and you name it so that is why we need a lot of boron right through the plant growth for all the tissue growth and then reproduction. All these micros in legumes are perhaps more important than in some of the other plants, but these are all important. And, you know, uh, take a look at these slides when you have a chance here because it, it outlines where you, you have some, uh, some possibilities to improve your, your productivity. And, uh, and we didn't look at it in the last one, but when you look at the seed nutrient content in peas, the levels of boron in the actual seed are far, high, far higher than they are in cereals. Canola would also be very high. The, the, as a general rule of thumb, dicotyledonous plants use more boron than monocots. Just the way the plant, the plant grows. So 
all these micros are important. Now, I sort of focus on micros because we've been farming here for a hundred years and we haven't been putting anything back. And I, you, know, you only need to really worry about them if you're short, like like any macro. So uh, don't be upset that you know I'm 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 pushing or think I'm pushing micros. I'm not. You just need to consider them. Yeah, yeah, yeah especially if we look at. <clears throat> I was just going to say, if we look at the pulse growing region in Western Canada, you know, a lot of them are growing in what we'd consider the brown soil zone, and and you know, as Mike would attest to, that's an area that is fundamentally deficient in zinc. There's just no way around it. It is low, low in zinc, and and yet we see zinc deficiency in a broad spectrum when we start to get very specific on our soil testing. You know, as Ryan has done over the last. 20 years of his career. I mean, he, you know, I mean, I don't have to tell you, but you know where deficiencies lie across the valley. Yeah, for sure. And I, one thing that does some of these immobile nutrients, they, uh, they don't change a lot, you know, from year to year, like copper, for instance, you can still test from year to year that the number doesn't change unless you do a some kind of a major application, um, bluestone or something. I've seen it actually change in the soil, but you, you, once you know, you know, but I find boron, like nitrogen can change from year to year um, from a soil test standpoint. I think that it comes out of the organic matter, correct me if I'm wrong, most of the boron, like naturally. That's where it's stored, yeah. Dry, dry weather, uh, you know, it's, it is leachable as well. Um, um, I, I find it's even that much more important when it's in dry, droughty conditions for, for pollination, right? Just because uh, just how pollination works. So uh, it's one thing that can change from year to year boron levels. and and I was just going to just quickly note on that you guys are probably wondering what attention levels are. You know, sometimes they find parts per million, 0.2 parts per million, and that's it's a, it's a no-brainer. Those ones are e easy to, to make a decision on. And then we talked earlier about how to apply boron. You know, it's, it's nicer to get it in the soil. It's just one less thing to worry about. When you, when you look at foliar applying boron, it's tough. Like again, logistics guys like to throw it in with their fungicides and canola or or peas or whatever, and, and maybe the timing might not be great for boron because it's it's that that becomes a bit of a a struggle. So it's always a little bit nicer to get it in the soil, but there's ways to put it on foliar as well. But it might be just be more more of an inconvenience, I guess, than anything. So to try and do that. Yeah. Uh, not to lose lose sight of our attendees, we got another question that I don't want to miss or kind of just went over it but Mike where do we uh where do we send our seeds for nutrient analysis and what specific tests are we getting done just so uh people well, know if they want to send their samples away well uh, I use <laughs> I use A&L uh because Greg Patterson is also very interested in this whole nutrient density issue and uh, uh and I use that and I just do the um it's the P1 test uh uh listed on their program and it's their it's their tissue test analysis basically we don't have a seed nutrient density test specific for that, but when they, you know, they break down the 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 kernel or the or, or the or the pea, um, it extracts pretty well everything. So that's what what we're using, just a regular um, uh, tissue test analysis. Uh, my thesis okay. is that, and we've and I'm seeing this now is we're we're, we're just in the beginning of this, is that the seed will tell you. Uh, we hope that by looking at the nutrient content of the seed, we can predict vigor and germination. That's what the study's focusing on. But I'm convinced over time that as we, if we do a soil test, a tissue test, a seed analysis that completes the cycle of the plant. And I think it's gonna be the, 
seed test that is going to tell you what the mother plant and that crop could not get in that year of production. And if we do this through a couple of cycles, I think we'll really have a better understanding of, of not just how to fertilize it, but how the plant perceives that fertility and can utilize that fertility that's put on. And it just coincidental, I mean, we, I, I did a couple of webinars for crop intelligence, and they're going to start doing some studies tying in all of this into their moisture sensing apparatus in the field so we can tie water into the whole cycle. So uh, I'm pretty optimistic we're going to learn a lot about this. Just start. Okay. Very, yeah, that's a great study that we're conducting and it's going to provide great information, especially when we're talking, you know, pursuing higher yields, what are our limiting factors? And, and thanks for that question, Darcy. We appreciate that because that is going to be valuable moving forward. Uh, I'm showing here total demand for 100 bushels. I've highlighted peas. We showed this slide on the on the last 100 bushel podcast. Again, if we if we rank the demand, you know, overall peas. If I added up all the the macronutrients, NPKs, calcium, magnesium, um, what does that look like? I say to grow 100 bushels, that pea crop on that acre needs to find 747 pounds of, of nutrient. <laughs> well, we compare that to barley. Barley is 365. Uh, if, but the caveat here, again, is 300 of the 700 is actually nitrogen that Theoretically, if we're leveraging biology, you know, hopefully we can use nature to actually help us find a big percentage of that nutrient. But that still leaves 400 and some pounds of other nutrients, you know, and a lot of that is actually going to be potassium. So it is, you put it in context, you want to grow high yielding pulses, peas specifically, you better not start on a field that has low levels of nutrition. Because if it does, chances are, you know, you're just not going to get there. And, and we'll reference this later in our conversation today with Megan, as we look specifically at some of her research sites over the last three years and, you know, the level of nutrition that those sites have and, and what it meant for actual production. So, you know, if you're starting with high targets, you better, you better figure out what you got to work with because peas as a crop, you know, they, they have their foot on the gas and, and it's not just at the start. It's, it's all season long. Brian and I were kind of talking about that yesterday about just, you know, it's not something that you can, you know, decide to do one year. It's, you really have to be preparing for a few years and building up that soil. You're never going to, I mean, I guess you could, it probably wouldn't be economical though to, to apply that much nutrition in, in a single year. So definitely is a yeah. multi-year um, approach to that. Fine too. There's no. nutrients that, uh, that, that are hard to remedy in the soil, right? Like I find, uh, you know, and in nitrogen and sulfur seem to be very simple to remedy. You, you have X, you need Y, you just add more and you get what you get, right? Where phosphate and potash, they're, they're tougher nuts to crack a little bit on getting to where you need a, available phos and potash so, or, or potassium. So, you know, it's, it's not as easy to, to do to remedy. Yeah. Now, now the good thing with peas, if in fact everybody is following a rotation due to disease management, you know, you might have six or seven years to, to build into it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you follow the guidelines and say, well, I got six years to build up my fertility before I get back to peas. But, uh, but you know, here we are. I'm going to show you another indication of our challenge. You know, we talk about peas 
and we look at its sensitivity to fertilizer, and I'm talking specifically salt load or salt index, of all our pulse crops that we would grow here in Western Canada or the biggest group of them, theoretically, peas could be considered the most sensitive. And this is work done by Dr. Jeff Shainu at the University of Saskatchewan, where he's telling us no more than uh, 15 pounds of, of phosphate in the seed row for peas versus fabas, where you could be as high as 40. So, you know, if you're thinking, what is the right pulse crop? I'm low in phosphorus. Maybe seed safety is part of your or your factor in deciding which pulse crop to pick. And as Megan knows, I mean, researching both crops, that's always built into her her plan when she uh, puts the fertility together. And that's why she's probably broadcasting. Would that be true? Yeah, you just can't get it. <laughs> yeah, we, we have a mid-row band and side band option. So that works for us pretty good, but um, yeah. Well. You know, if, if you look at, you know, putting peas after canola, you've got, you've got a couple of issues because canola push, pull a pound of, of pea per bushel. If you're going to follow canola with peas and you're pulling a 50, 60 bushel of canola crop off, you're gonna, your pea level, you better be starting a couple of years ahead of that pea crop, man, if you're going to try any kind of a stunt like that because uh, you're going to be short of pea. Yeah. And I, I mean, this isn't about products, but, you know, we, we are adamant. I mean, the future of fertility is, is bringing nutrients without salt. And that's why we think a product like Crystal Green is so imperative in agriculture, why it's such a good fit in, in crops like pulses, because it, we're, we're, we're letting the crop actually do the feeding itself and we're taking the salt away. So there's never any injury, you know, to that seedling or the early part of that plant's life. And, uh, you know, those are solutions that we're going to see more come our way, which is fantastic because that's going to help us continue to push the bar on, on uh, what's possible. I do show nutrient demand here if you can't see it, but, you know, pulses, peas specifically are a crop that, you know, needs a high concentration of nutrients for a long period of time, all the way out to, to basically reproduction. And, uh, you know, one of the big ones we go back to, the total demand of say something like potassium. I think uh, off memory, I think it's to grow hundred bushels, that crop needs to find 275 pounds of, of potassium on acre through the growing season. And so if you got, you know, sandy soil, coarse textured soil where your potassium levels are lower, you know, that, that definitely could be a limiting factor. And, and the plant is thinking every single minute of the day, you know, it's, 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 sending roots out and th those roots are pulling back information to the, the DNA to make decisions to say, what should we be? And if it's not finding the nutrients, it essentially is then going to set itself up for essentially lower, lower potential. And I, I learned this from Mike. So Mike's nodding his head, but, uh, I'm learning Mike. I'm learning. Yeah. This, yeah, this graph is what I use all the time, and everybody should recognize this, that the plant builds this vegetative, it's, all plants grow like this. They have this vegetative growth, which is growing not just the leaves, but all the reproductive parts. And when it does this flowering starts, and the trick with peas, of course, peas are somewhat indeterminate. They bloom over a long, long period of time. So if you're gonna wanna put in nutrient to load this plant, 
you're going to want to put it in before you get to this blooming period to load her into the plant so that it can use it to support the growth and the final production of the whole reproductive system, including the pollen and the anthers and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you go in late, you're behind the ball. You got to, if you're going to grow this crop, you got to keep the, the pedal to the metal right from the get-go as far as I'm concerned on all aspects. Yeah, we do have quite a few questions around the seed and germination. And one thing we will do is, you know, this very intensive study we have on the go right now that's basically cross-correlating nutrient content to vigor and germ. You know, we will we'll, we'll produce that report so everybody can have access to that. But, you know, I do think we are onto something that's, uh, you know, if you grow a crop on a poor fertilized field, Ultimately, to Mike's point, the seed's probably also going to be have a lower level of nutrition. And we talk about seed growers, you know, they're if they're the leaders in the industry, which we expect them to be, and they usually are, you know, we we want to work with them to ensure that they're producing the highest nutrient-dense seed, not just high germination, but to ensure the vigor is, is fully optimized with high levels of phosphorus, zinc, manganese, nutrients that are important to that. So it's all part of this process, everybody working together to figure out, you know, how to reduce the, the uh, hurdles that take away from potential. We'll get into <clears throat> this key aspect of production. When we talk pulses, that's obviously, you know, fixing nitrogen. In this case, you know, we're talking hundreds of pounds we need to find a nation. And this is where Ryan and I have had this uh, emotional connection over the last 17 or 18 years of our relationship where <laughs> you know we've always we've always uh connected on on a deeper thinking of of the soil health aspect and trying to learn more what what does how does this relationship work with plants soil and biology and i know ryan's had a huge passion to, to understand soil at a greater depth and so when we look at the importance of of nodulation and the impact that this actually has on on peas and i know megan's done a fair bit of work and actually research for us because we're in this space as well um, what are some of the key factors you're looking at here like from a soil all the way through to biology in this relationship well when it comes to soil biology i find it's one of those things where the, the more i i learn the more i learn i don't know when it comes to soil biology <laughs> it is it is a huge space and there are all sorts of different types of flavors of inoculant. Uh, we've, we haven't done a lot on peas, but we've done more on soybeans. From that standpoint, we're looking to do more with peas. Uh, I think there's a lot to learn there. And uh, with fava beans as well. Um, you know, there's been a big debate about pH uh, as well um, with that. I, Megan, maybe you can talk about this. We, we've looked for white paper data on this, and you can just maybe just touch on that as well. Like there, there's a there's a huge debate about this, and I, just you go ahead, Megan. This might want to... <laughs> well, we we have a lot of higher pH soil in the valley, and uh, it's kind of been told to us that high pH soils don't don't um, ha get good nodulation, and you know we're pulling off some pretty some pretty decent um, pea crops and and soybeans as well, and so Ryan had the question of, you know, well, let's let's compare this. Um, how how does modulation look in these in different in different pH soils? And so we we collected some soil um, in the fall. So we had um, 
down to a 5.8 pH up to an 8.5. Um, so we did three, kind of a low, medium, high pH soil, and we, we grew out um, soybeans, peas, and fabas in those soils in our grow room over the winter. It's just wrapping up now. Um, and for the peas, I mean, we, we really didn't get good nodulation um, overall, like across across all the soils. And I'm not exactly sure why, you know, it was our first time trying to um, get things to nodulate in the grow room. But the point was, there was no difference in the, in the really high pH. There was there was no significant difference um, in how those plants responded to the inoculant. So it's something that we'd like to continue um, in the field and, and see how that looks and, and maybe redo it again with um, on seed. We, we just used granular inoculant for this trial, but um, looking at some seed on seed inoculant as well. So we've also looked at what, what, go ahead. I was just going to maybe to a point, <clears throat> I just wonder if there's some correlation there where the, the rhizobium bacteria for pulses is more native to, to Western Canada. Maybe they've actually adapted themselves over, over time to mm -hmm. more accommodate a higher pH soil where uh, Brady rhizobium for soybeans is not native. So it maybe hasn't been able to adapt to our soil type as, as effectively. I, it's a thought. Yeah. I don't know if it's could for sure. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Um, in the fabas, the also a native um, uh, bacteria, but it, there was excellent nodulation across all soil types, like hundreds per plant. Um, so that really didn't seem the pH didn't seem to affect that at all. So yeah, now I do know I do know there is there's visual nodules and what looks to be nodulation, and then the other side of that is actually nitrogen fixation. So, yes. you know, to understand how effective those nodules are is really the other part of the, mm -hmm. the conversation. Oh, my, my staff's listening to this, so I should do a shout out to them. But yeah, of those 200 nodules on every fava bean plant, they're slicing them in half with, with scalpels to see if they're pink and active or if they're green and not doing anything. So I'm um, definitely okay. considered that as well. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. So, uh, uh, faba bean nodules are, are similar to soybean nodules, and and of course, as you know, or maybe folks don't know, a faba bean is about the, the the best nitrogen fixing crop we can possibly grow. It fixes more nitrogen than any other legume that we grow. It mm -hmm. is a great, great crop. I've got spent forty years looking at lagus bugs and in in faba beans, but it uh, it is a great crop for you guys that grow it for the first time. It's your easiest way to find out if you have pea leaf weevil around because those those weevils can sniff out faba beans from I don't know how miles away. And uh, if you're going to find pea leaf weevil feeding on anything, it'll be on a faba bean. You can use that as a sentinel crop if you want. <laughs> I, uh, you had something to mention, Ryan, and then I'll, I'll get moving along. Oh, I was just going to make a comment on faba beans as well. They're the one crop more so than peas or or, or soybeans for that matter, how they can actually change the soil structure of your of your soil. Like you can take some heavy peguous blue clay and seed fava beans in there. And time after time, uh, the customer has said to me the next year when they're cultivating or seeding, this is the most mellow I've seen this dirt uh, in my life. Like it, it's it's a common it's a common uh, statement from every customer that's grown soybeans. It's it's actually quite Quite remarkable what it can do to your soil. So, 
Yeah. It's funny, Ryan, well, I would... when I first started, I had asked some farmers, like, why are you, you know, what's the benefit of soybeans or, or fabas? And, and they said, oh, it mellows out your soil. And I'm like, I don't know what that means, but okay. And then I, I, we had the research farm on some fava bean ground, and I was like, oh, this is nice. Like, I get what this, you know, it, it was a huge difference. If I could follow fabas all the time, I, I would. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, maybe a, a whole other benefit to a rotation. <clears throat> and I truly believe this is actually where this relationship between plant, soil, and biology come together. You know, you got a high nitrogen fixing crop piles and nodulation. You know, it's it's allowing plants to exude a high level of of acid. I think it actually is a real good soil builder, not just structurally, but also biologically speaking. And I right. think we're overlooking some of those things moving forward. You know, fabas in the rotation could be a real soil health piece to actually help with bi biological activity. And I will reference it here because there was a question from Darcy. And Darcy, you're asking some good questions today. But uh, peas on canola ground, is that okay? And, and, and we would say absolutely. Now, you got to be cognizant of the nutrient demand of canola and then how much nutrients peas need. How do we fertilize that? The other side that we look at ourselves is actually the importance of mycorrhizae to to pulses especially peas fabas well, and all pulse crops but when you grow canola it's not a host plant for mycorrhizae so your mycorrhizal populations actually deplete you know they starve off and, and canola actually even emits a toxin that kills off the the spores so including mycorrhizae onto your inoculant option for peas is important and and uh, Ryan and Megan of Megan's researched this, and Ryan has seen a lot of this used in the Swan River Valley on pulse crops. You know, especially on canola ground, it's it's just a it's a, it's a I, I call it an absolute. If you're on peas on canola, you better bring mycorrhizae back into into the equation. Yeah, that and flax as well is a big one I find too. So we don't have to we grow lots of yeah. flax here, but yeah. All right. Well, there's lots of interest in flax this year at twenty dollars a bushel. Yeah, there and is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, our active line has mycorrhizal option in it, and I just say that's canola ground. It gives us an option to change the mindset on rotation. Peas on canola can be a great fit. Let's talk quickly about water, <clears throat> and I, I love I love the idea of understanding water in dryland farming. And, you know, I think it's another phase of learning and agronomy that, you know, we're going to dial in and, and there's lots of companies that are focused on this, but, you know, we stack up peas to our core crops we grow here in Western Canada. It is uh, only falling slightly short to canola as far as how much water it takes to grow a bushel, 3,770 gallons to grow a bushel. And, and I, I took this, this was from our last podcast, but I did a little more research to say, well, how, how many gallons of water is there in an inch of rain on an acre? And as smart as I am and as smart as everybody is today, you can Google it and it'll tell you. And so I Googled it and it actually told me there's 2,700 gallons of, of, uh, of water in an inch of rain on an acre. And so you do the quick math, you know, that's potentially seven bushels of, of peas in an inch. And, and well, as we wrap up here today, we'll look at some of the research Megan's done where she actually, you know, measured the, the rainfall every year and, and the research plots and how that could actually correlate to overall the tech production. So, 
we talk dryland farming, you know, a lot of peas, a lot of lentils are grown where it's drier. And yet if we're talking a hundred, I mean, you do the, the quick math. If, if we get seven bushels out of an inch, how many inches of rain do we need? And we need four inches to build the factory in the soil. Yeah. It's big. It's big. It's a lot of rain to grow a hundred. Doesn't happen easy. And yet our greatest concern with rain and peas is what? Wet feet. Wet feet. Wet feet and disease. So it's this conundrum that we got. We want to get there, but but uh, we gotta we gotta try to manage that water. So again, I'm gonna come back to water infiltration, soil health. If you got ponding, chances are you're setting yourself up for some level of disease that's gonna come into the into this crop. This is uh we talked about weeds early, but you know, this is information I got from Megan that she got from Saskatchewan Agriculture. I just threw this in here. But again, the importance of weed control early is something that we did talk to. It's a very poor competitor in its early days. Um, the other challenge we have is, I say this on pulses, 30 days in or 25 days in your spraying herbicide to control weeds, which is, Ryan says is critical, but you also have a plant, like Mike says, is taking a lot of its energy to try to build nodules. So you hit it with herbicide like a viper, you know, to control the volunteer canola. What does that mean for a plant? It takes a pile of energy for nodulation, takes a pile of energy to metabolize the chemistry in Viper, and yet we're still trying to grow a factory. And so I say plant health here is actually critical, and that's, you know, some nutrition in the tank with herbicide. If we're talking 100 bushels, I just see it as an absolute must where we got to keep the plants actively growing. Probably in all reality, we need phosphorus. We need phosphorus and potassium. Uh, we do have a product active VPR that, you know, we're focused on plant health to ensure that, you know, we don't stall out nodulation or stall out the metabolization of, of the chemistry in, in a Viper or an Odyssey or whatever we're actually spraying. So something to consider. Don't just think of killing weeds. I think let's focus on health to ensure nodulation happens early. We're not setting that plant back for for four or five or six days. And lots of people have seen yellow peas after herbicide. And yeah. we don't like to see it, um, especially if we're trying to grow 100. And, and that crop is done in 90 days. And you take five or six or seven days where it's yellow. I say those are days you don't, you don't get them back. Yeah. That, that raises a point I want to make, just a reminder to everyone listening, is with these drier conditions we've had over the last couple of years, don't forget about flucarbazone rotation. Like if you're going after wheat and if you use Everest, it's really never been a big issue with our higher organic matter and heavier soils up here, but I've seen it. And it's something that we've kind of ignored or not paid a lot of attention to. But remember, if you have Everest, if you sprayed Everest or flucarbazone of any kind um, and you're going into peas, it's something to be aware of and remember that. It's, it can, it'll curtail that 100 bushels pretty fast. For sure, the residue. So herbicide rotation uh, seems to be really important in grown peas and lentils. Yep, a lot of damage. A lot of damage. So we get to the we get to the reproductive stage here. Obviously, a critical phase again. Flowering. Maybe talk a little bit about insects. I mean, obviously, Mike, this is your your career. Yeah. Ryan, from a scouting perspective, how often are you finding pea aphids uh, in peas at, at flowering? You know what, aphids 
here haven't been something that we've had to spray for in the valley in peas. It's, it's, it's never seems to be too bad. I'm more worried about uh, pea weevil. I've been finding lots of adults in the fall in the trash. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's something to be, to be cognizant of or, or be aware of the fact that they're, they're here and they're in the valley. So um, haven't seen any major, major damage, but why let it get to that point? Why not try and, you know, uh, ounce of prevention is always, you know, better than a pound of cure, right? So if, if we can kind of get ahead of it and there's, there's seed treatments and things that, that can curtail that as well. So um, just be aware, of the, be aware of it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing that we do know about peas is that uh, killing the adults or foliar, you know, spraying out the adults doesn't seem to provide much protection. Each female lay a thousand eggs. They just spray them on the ground. So basically all you're doing is revenge killing and, and making yourself feel good that you're killing a bunch of bugs. But if you're going to do anything, use a seed dressing because what the, the weevil adult just chews on the leaves, it's the larvae that go down and, and live right in the nodule. They use the, the, the sugars and the carbon that the plant gives to the nodule and the nitrogens that's being fixed as their energy source. It's a great lifestyle. So it's protecting in that nodule. So it eats the nodule and you lose nitrogen fixation and, and suppress the plant. So, so just don't waste your money spraying the adults, basically. If you're going to do anything, use a seed application, a seed treatment, and away you go. And another thing, too, there's, yeah. there's uh, uh, you know, you have a conversation with your farmer or your, your producer, and, you know, the conversation always kind of steers to, why well, I don't have that insect. Well, if, if my advice would be if they're in the area, then it's probably a wise thing to just to try and prevent. It's harder to get rid of something than once you have it. I find, you know, just try and prevent it as, as much as you can. If, if they're not known to the, to the general area, absolutely. You're, you're probably fine. You wait and see. But if they're starting to show up, then, then it's, it's probably good practice for not a lot of investments to, to prevent these, these insects. So. I'm going to throw down a thought, and it's probably controversial, but, you know, it's my 20 years of looking at soil. <laughs> 20 years of looking at soil tests and tissue tests. You know, Mike references the importance of tissue testing to ensure we have optimal nutrition at this critical phase of a crop's life. I would argue, you know, there's going to be a correlation to concentrations of potassium in the pea plant and the infestation potential of something like aphids. And so we look at this over the years, you know, aphids being a, a leaf sucking in, insect, it could be an indication that we are actually low in potassium and that's, you know, why they're attracted. We've seen that for years on potatoes where we do petioles every week. And, you know, they could always uh, predict leaf hoppers, you know, before they actually came in, basis concentrations of, of potassium in, in the plant. So I'll throw that out if somebody wants to challenge me by all means, but I always say there's a correlation between insects and, and plant health. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I can disagree with you, Craig, at all. I, I think yeah. we just, there's more to learn about that as well, but I think there's, there's definitely, there's a lot of merit to what you just said. I, I, I believe that. Yeah. So a tissue test could be part of a, an insect uh, monitoring program as well, potentially, yeah. as crazy yeah. as that sounds. <laughs> it's handy, and, and you can rectify some of that through foliar. But if you're if you're not tissue testing and putting on foliar nutrients, you're kind of miss maybe missing the target. How do you know what the heck you're you're really needing in the plant? So I, I'm a big believer that tissue testing is 
is the blood test during season and the way you go with that. Yeah. Go go back one, Craig. I got to make a comment about this for guys about aphids and everything else. Here's here's a a a, a pea. Inside that clam leaf, you have growth of, of other clam leaves, and there's a whole series about three or four of them with every clam leaf. And then you get into this is where the the growing point is. So that's where we have to get nutrients, and all the new cells are produced there. But uh, the next couple of slides are going to help you a bit. When the plant, the pea plant is an indeterminate kind of plant. So at every peduncle, you get two or three pods that form. Each one of those are in series. So, you know, and, and within each flower, they're in series as well in terms of growth with, within that set of three. So here you can see uh, uh, this one, uh, the, the middle bottom one, where you can see the anthers are formed and the next one is a close-up. Now you can move onward. But, but all of these here are just growing more leaves inside of that. So here we have uh, a pea, and this is still inside the flower, and it's pollinated, and you can see all the pollen on the stigma, and it's gonna grow down all of these uh, po uh, pollen tubes down to pollinate every, every seed. And if it doesn't get pollinated, you don't get a seed there. Now, because there's a sequence in every little clump, and there's the first ones are on the bottom, and then they're higher and higher up, you know, peas can, can bloom for a prolonged period of time. So as the plant reaches that peak in its growth curve into flowering, the first flowers formed get the majority of the nutrient from that plant because the still the roots are still performing, they're still working. But as time goes on, the plant will start shutting down the supply of sugars to the roots because now the sink is the seed. And that's what the plant is focusing focusing on. So you got to get that plant built up to that particular time and you have to have all that pollen <laughs> ready to go. Yeah. So, so, that's yeah. so you got to start early. You got to have, you know, if you're going to go on it with anything, the plant is sort of loaded at the start of bloom. If you want to support it for two or three weeks through that bloom period, you're going to have to add something in there if you don't have enough to carry it right through to fill those top pods. You get what I mean? Because it's yeah. a sequential event. Yeah, I would argue there isn't a plant that we grow in Western Canada because we only got 100 days. We, if we can't build a factory early, and I'm talking the first 40, 50 days of its life, you know, how do we grow roots, get the factory built? Because when you get to reproduction, you're relying mostly on the factory. And sure enough, yeah, you can apply a foliar. I mean, in this case for us, flower, active flower with nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium in it and some boron. It's really just to try to help finish this reproductive phase of a plant's life. And, you know, it's been very effective on peas over the years. But no, you better, you better, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. You better build the factory early because Mike's talking having that nutrient loaded into the plant to support this critical phase. Now, now think of it this way if, if you've got the factory built, you now need the water to move everything into the seed. So if you get that dry condition at that period of time, the plant is going to really, really struggle. First of all, the plant has to build the seed in terms of cells. Then it's got to fill it with all the nutrients from the rest of the plant to complete it. That water at the end of the life cycle is pretty damn important. And last year, canola across the prairies got hit really hard 
because it turned hot and dry during that pod filling period. And guys were really disappointed in a lot of crops. A lot of people, you know, we want that water, but we need it throughout the whole life cycle of that plant, right through, um, except once it starts uh, senescing. And, and I'm hoping your water stuff later on shows some of that in the year where you had poor yields. Just to so you know, we're, we're at an hour. The conversation's been great. If you want to stick with us, you know, we still got most people on and uh, give us another 10 minutes, 15 minutes to wrap up. we got some great reference research material from Megan here at the end that we want to get to as well. So um, we appreciate you staying on, you know, and conversation has been enjoyable here for me. So uh, just to mention, and this is probably on everybody's mind, but disease, when we talk about peas and, and even lentils, and then Megan's going to show you some stuff, even on Sabas, how impactful disease can be. But what, any recommendations, guidelines? You know, Barry, Barry's asked a good question here about any forecasting tools for disease that we could potentially leverage in peas uh, that would help us. Um, in this case, I'm, I think I'm showing a phantomyces, but uh, um, let's have a quick conversation and then we'll get into some of Megan's stuff. Well, my opinion on a phantomyces is kind of scary. I don't something you don't, <laughs> definitely don't want. It's 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 like a it's like the club root of of peas, really. Um, and the uh, problem but is, worse. There's, huh? That's that kind worse. of. But worse because there's no genetics that we have available right now to <clears throat> prevent it. There's a bit of there's some seed treatments now coming out that that uh, you know might help a bit, but. Uh, yeah, and it needs to be treated the same way as clever clean your equipment. It's it's soil borne. It's it's a it's a scary disease for pulses. Um, it worries me actually uh, quite a bit. But the rotation and how the half life of this is what I think Megan is like eight years or something. They're saying ten. The the spores, the resting spores, are ten ten years viable in the soil. Um, recommending a four to five year rotation between pea crops if you don't have a phantomyces and if you do have a positive test in your field then you should be more like six years between pea crops or or pulse crops yeah lentils and are also affected so yeah so there is an actual test you can test your soil mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. okay that's good for people so, to know yeah there uh the manitoba uh, Alberta and SAS Pulse Growers Associations put together a really um, kind of nice little handout on Aphanomyces. Um, in 2017, they did a survey across the prairies. There was only 31 fields um, tested in Manitoba, but 45% of those fields had Aphanomyces present, um, which in Saskatchewan was uh, 40, 40%. So we're already pretty high. <laughs> and it's been dry. And, and I think I have a, my, my fears on a, a year with more moisture. This could show up. I don't want to be a doomsday guy, but I mean, it's something to be something to be cognizant and aware of. Like it's a serious thing that if there's, if there's any product, there's a product, uh, Syngenta has a product too, that, you know, a, a prevention that prevented a product. It's not perfect, but I mean, it's, it's out there. These are things to, to keep in mind. Like I said, and, an ounce of for an ounce of prevention found a cure. So, um, uh, yeah. yeah we thing, are... Sorry, another Go thing ahead, to Megan. mention is that uh, uh, they do suggest that if you want to keep 
a pulse in your rotation that fava beans are a good option. They do have a partial resistance um, to aphanomyces. So I'm just, just sharing what I've learned um, from, yep. from the pulse growers. But uh, yeah, that's at least a little bit of hope. <laughs> yeah. I think Megan may might want to talk about just on fungicides in general, some of the stuff we've done. It's, it's, it's been no less than positive, even on dry years. On, on some of the research we've done with fungicides, mm -hmm. not for just for diseases in general and peas. So, yeah, we've been working with uh, the Manitoba Pulse and Soybean Growers Association through their on-farm networks. So we have um, producers that are willing, and um, I'm very grateful to them that they'll do these field field trials. Um, it is a lot of work, and and I do appreciate that they work with us. But over the last um, Three years, we've done nine different uh, trials with peas. Six of them were in um, in uh, fungicide, and even in those three dry years from 2018, 19, and 2020, 50% uh, of the time there was a significant yield increase with a fungicide application. Um, whether and this is many different products, different timings, one app versus two apps, two apps versus no apps. It kind of, it all plays out in the year of, of, you know, looking at, okay, well, how much rainfall did we have? Do we want to go early? Do we want to go late? So it's not a really great comparison, but if you think you're going to need a fungicide, um, at a certain point in your growing season, there's a 50% chance that it was the right decision, even on a dry year. So to look, mm. if we had done these between you know, 2014 to 2017, these results could be like, who knows how, what those significant levels would be. So, um, Brian and I were talking, I was like, you know, what do you need to do for, for hundred bushel peas? Well, you, you need a fungicide application. That's probably something you should bank on. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. A lot of guys are putting on two fungicide applications right now, even if we're at whatever they're going at simply to keep that crop from from going down on them and keeping that flow of nutrients and water for transpiration to keep moving up the plant. Mm -hmm. you know, so if you're if you're shooting for a big big yield, you're going to be watching that and monitoring that pretty closely and be ready to go for sure. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I you know in in this in this space too in, in egg research and if you know doing this and we find that 50 percent. Is a, is a really good number on a on a dry year. Like it's it's, it's you feel confident and and there's lots of gambles you take every every year and this would be definitely one of them. Like for yeah. sure. Yeah. I should say that like 50% of the time it was a significant increase. 100% of the time the yield average yield was always increased, but just with the trial layouts and when um, you apply some statistics to it, you want to be sure that your differences are due to the treatment and not due to where you place the strips in the field. So um, you're not going to lose anything, I guess, by putting on 50 a... 50% of the time, it works every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, good, the go. good thing is there's a lot of great fungicidal options for pulses. I mean, yeah. a lot of the, the companies have brought forth some great products that give us that, that uh, level of protection. And, mm -hmm. and let's be honest, if anybody's tried to run through a 80 or 90 bushel pea crop at flowering, good luck. You're going to get about 10 feet in. So, you know, you know, the, you know, the massive material there and you say, well, how is disease? You know, it's, it's a totally different environment in that canopy. And you say, well, it's, it's thick, it's dense, it's woven together. 
you say it definitely creates an opportunity for for disease to actually take hold right so it's it makes nothing but sense yeah uh megan we're getting into some of your stuff here as we wrap up obviously and again we appreciate everybody sticking with us as we've been over but you know this is some of your variety trial work that you've done over the last three years and you know I, I actually, when I, you sent this to me, I'm like, oh, Jack, I believe there's that many pea varieties out there, <laughs> you know, in the marketplace. We yeah, yeah. Three, but, there's, yeah. Um, I think, 20, I think I counted there was 20, 19 or 20 that we've had all three years. Um, and then on this graph okay. here, there's a few stragglers that we've had either one or two years um, that we've looked at. But the point of this wasn't to show the actual yields of, of any of these varieties. I mean, they're all suitable for different areas, I'm sure. But just the, the trend of, of the three years that we did um, grow these varieties in that 18, 2018 and 2020 were, were quite successful years for, for peas in our area. Um, you know, we're pushing, we had plots, individual plots that were well over 100 bushels an acre when you factor that out. But um, on an average, we're, we're pushing that, um, that 100 bushel mark here. Um, but so when I, we were talking about this, Craig, and you said, well, what was the difference in 2019? So I kind of went, we went into the soil test and, and uh, you know, there wasn't really anything that stood out to me that um, here's, yeah, if, if you're watching, there's the, um, the soil test of the top six inches of the profile there for the three years. So these are three different fields, um, different soils, textures. Nothing really stood out where like, oh, well, you know, we were short in boron in 2019 and that's why it, you know, nothing, nothing popped out at us. So then we looked at, um, well, the, the nutrients that were applied were, were roughly the same um, and what it really came down to. So in 2018, our average bushels per acre is 84, 2019, 47, 2020, 87 bushels an acre. Um, but in 2019, we had half the rainfall. Um, and I think what's more important is that rainfall came too late. Um, in 2018 and 2020, we had a really good um, soaker in June, and it, the crop needed that you know, to, to build that factory. And in, in 2019, it just wasn't there. It, it, it came too late, and, uh, and the crop suffered. Yeah. Is there anything in there, Mike, that you see that you'd pull no, out that was in the nutrient no, side of things? No, but here's the, the problem. Uh, because you had no water, the, the what's in the soil had is somewhat irrelevant. Mm -hmm. what, you need, what you needed was the tissue test through those three years to tell you what the problem was. <laughs> right. Because... You know, we know with potassium, we know with, with many of these uh, that are immobile to a large degree, and potassium is really key. You know, N and, N and P build the cells. The potassium and water are what grow and expand the cells. We know that under dry conditions, things like boron, potassium, uh, zinc, all those micros that are metals are going to be deficient. So it doesn't matter. But under water conditions, when you got water, the roots can grow and they can access that. They can't when it's dry. Mm -hmm. So that's the beauty. Uh, for me, as long as I'm with Taurus, whenever we do a trial anymore, I want a soil test, a tissue test, and a analysis <laughs> on, on that trial. Because you go from seeding to yield, you have no idea 
during that growing season, what factors were affecting it? Just that mm -hmm. simple. Yeah, I would say the one that jumps out to me is obviously water. You know, the one year that yields were down 50, 60 versus 80, 90, 100 is, you know, you're missing essentially four inches of water, which if I do my quick math, four inches of water is 28 bushels a piece. You go back to your chart and say, well, that's, that's not far off, right? When you look yeah. at the, the years. So uh, as much as we scare, are scared about water with disease, if we're talking high yield peas, we need water. It's, there's no way around it. Mm -hmm. It's um, almost worse, worse than that because four inches of water in one fall is not the same as an inch of or an inch of water every week for four weeks. Right. Yeah. So even there, you got to be cognizant of when it comes and how much. Yeah. 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 In 2020, that 295 mill, millimeters of rain there, we had four four inches of that in a couple of hours. So it, it probably is more like 200 for the season, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a quick. We're going to wrap up here pretty quick, but there's a question back to the fungicide. Obviously, okay. is it a is it something that it adds yield and, I, and I'll say straight up, no, all we're trying to do with fungicides is keep the yield that we started with. You know, we're yeah. trying to salvage and protect. Does everybody agree with that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 100%. Okay. Fungicides do not add yield. They keep the yield we had, but the concern here in this question is, does it actually prolong maturity? Uh, yeah, it can too as well. I, I believe it yeah. does. It's just that so it'll help your plant and it, it'll live longer. For sure, but yeah. with hand in hand, if your plant's going to live longer, you're going to have seeds filling, pods filling longer. It's it's going to equate to yield. So your your, your nutrient supply is going to affect your your senescence period, and then mostly nitrogen is responsible for for that prolongation length of the green period in plants. I wanted to, yeah. I don't know, I'm running out of time, but I wanted to do one thing. I just wanted to ask Mike to <laughs> on we want to do some work with protein in pulses you know because it's a big thing right now i just wanted your quick snapshot on what what are some and, and maybe even to the the audience listen to this what what are some things that did you think you might want to try or do to try and manipulate protein in in, in peas um you know we've have megan and i are coming up with a few ideas on on you know low-hanging fruit is nitrogen and sulfur and and you know we're thinking about maybe doing some foliar urea trials at certain times of the plant life uh just to see if if we can actually try and, and increase protein or, or manipulate it to some degree. Um, but what, what, what would you think, Mike? Just Well, uh, this is a question that's been coming up for us in the last while, and I've been digging through the literature over the last couple of weeks, and, and I can't actually find a whole lot of this, to tell no. you the honest truth, uh, out there. Uh, definitely, uh, NTOS ratio has got to be a, a major, major factor. Uh, but the plant, you know, the plant can access access things quite well and i think it's it's water i mean we know more about wheat when we, we get high protein when we get poor growth and we get a lot of nitrogen well with, with peas it's already a high protein crop right you know 30 plus percent protein so it's tough to move that up uh, big time and the genetics uh, there's there's got to be a genetic factor for sure between mm -hmm. varieties is it would be the first place I would look for that. Then I would look at the balance of, uh, of N to S and maybe move that up. I would also then drive my phosphorus and my potassium as high as I possibly could in there. 
uh, and uh, that's about all I could do. I, my micros, I wouldn't be worried about. If I didn't have that phosphorus and potassium first, along with the sulfur and nitrogen, you know what? I'm a believer if you don't have those in place that right. make the merger plant, the micros aren't going to save you. Yep. You know, and, and, and the timing of that is critical too. Like if you're going to put a dribble on with the nitrogen, you want to blast mid-bloom or somewhere, and I, and I hate doing much during the boom period to tell you honest truth because that in fact stresses itself but if you can dribble it or you can put a delayed nitrogen application on in some slow release mechanism going into the end of the crop i think that's where you're going to drive her up but it's not clear to me ryan not clear to me how we drive that protein higher yeah my if you want my thoughts i would say let's leverage the tools we currently have i mean i i don't really know if nodulation or using biology can get us 100 percent all the way there you know that's right. why we're talking about maybe top dressing nitrogen which i i think there's some merit to but why not even on peas or let, let's talk about double inoculating we're talking 100 bushels mm -hmm. if double inoculating actually helps the biology do more of a job or find you know extra nitrogen for that plant more nodules means then we better have more other fertility to support those nodules too um, right. But, you know, that's one thing that, you know, Ryan's looking at this year and a lot of their pulses is double inoculating, putting a, you know, inoculant on the seed plus an in-furrow. And I, I think that's going to be another uh, tool to help us not just pursue yield, but make sure we got enough in. I mean, and I say we can never have enough sulfur on our soil. So, yeah. you know, back to my days at Tagger where we were broadcasting 100 pounds. I mean, we see a lot of that going on today still and even more so today with biosol and, and things like that. that you know, let's tighten that NDS ratio as tight as we can possibly get it, because that's only going to help us when it comes to trying to derive protein at the end of the season on, on a big, big crop, right? So these are nutrients that are easier to remedy in the soil too. They're easier to, to deal with year to year, right? So it, yeah. it, it'd be a quicker fix if you could identify if there was an issue, right? Like I find or think so. Yeah. I think that would be a great yeah. research project for you guys to take on is to look at that because it's a significant question coming up all over the place and it's going to stay here. Yeah, we, we, we are. We are. We want to. We would be open to ideas, too. If anyone can think of something that they'd like to try, we have the resources to do that. So, okay, we should talk. Uh, yeah, we, we have a survey at the end. For those that have stayed on, we'll send out a survey. If you got some ideas on what you'd like to see, uh, specifically for Megan and her research, initiatives you know I, I like this conversation because we're talking about a human protein crop here now both for fabas and peas mm -hmm. protein i gotta think for the the processors is going to be important you know they're going to tell us what varieties to grow but let's mm -hmm. figure out how to optimize protein one last thing i'll mention too is megan has done some research for us on soybeans looking at the impact of protein when using mycorrhizae and we have seen you know some increase in protein on soybeans with the inclusion of mycorrhizae into, into the biological uh, application up front as well, which is to me, that's phosphorus, finding more phosphorus, which builds more energy, which gives us a chance to have a stronger plant. Sure. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be a question. I, I think we know already that genetics have a big effect. We're seeing some of the protein plants having a, having some favored varieties that they, they prefer preferred varieties. So I think that, really alludes into the fact that there's they're seeing um, sure. a genetic difference with protein but 
yeah, like like Craig, like Craig, you just said, there's there's a lot of things that can come into play, but I believe that there's a reason for everything, and we can figure it out. You know, we can, you know, it might take some time, but yeah. Yeah, I think that's your best chance on a short run is 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 the genetics to tell you the honest truth. Yeah. Until we figure this out. Yeah. So what it, what it takes is it takes people that are on this webcast that have passion to find find uh, ways to learn and you know, take the blinders off and say what is possible. And uh, you know, I think the conversation today has been fantastic there was no way we were going to fit it into an hour and so we've gone over time <laughs> <laughs> and i appreciate when everybody contributes i mean this is this has been great i'm learning myself i always do that's why i enjoy doing these podcasts and uh you know so to wrap you know we've covered everything from you know having good balanced soil you know obviously drainage is critical long rotations we got to think fertility versus fertilizer versus fertilizer um you know, leveraging this biological activity that we have for pulses is key. It's a huge asset that we have in, in these crops. Water, as as uh, Megan has identified in her three years of research on peas, is 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 critical. Um, and in plant health throughout, you know, weeds weeds. As Ryan says, if if you don't get them, you're in trouble. You know, they they take nutrients and water too, right? So. Um, and pick, pick yeah. a variety that's best suited for your area. Megan's identified that some varieties are have performed better in the in the valley. There's no question, right? So, um, so with that, any closing comments that you want to cover off as we as we wrap? I, I would just say it's, this so. has been this has been good. I, I was a little nervous my first podcast, but we settled in pretty good, didn't we? And we kind of almost. The redhead stepchild of the pulse of fava beans. We never got a chance to talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never got a chance to talk about fava beans much. We could probably talk for two hours about that alone. But you know, that's a passion right. of mine too. Fava beans. You know, there's there's so much to learn about them as well, and they're pretty cool plants. So yeah. One thing we never we didn't mention, but Ryan and I had talked about it. Um, you see it a lot because your peas are coming off in in August and. You see those beautiful pea crops in September, and I think some low-hanging fruit is set your combine yourself the four or five bushels that you're throwing out the back. Um, yeah, that's just an easy thing. If, if we're trying to if we're trying to push it and we want a product, and those products are going to give us you know three or four bushels, well, take the time and set the combine, and there's five bushels for you. Pretty easy. I say that easy, yeah. not ever having started a commercial combine, so I <laughs> you should maybe check uh, what I'm telling you guys to do, but it seems like a good good yeah. place to start. Yeah, there is, a I think, a good tool out there, Bushel Plus. You know, it's got a mm -hmm. pretty good tool to, to actually help help us manage combine settings, and I agree with you, Megan. <laughs> we do all this stuff, and then we throw five bushels at the back. You say, oh, who's, who's fooling who here, right? I mean, that's, today, yeah. that's that's forty five fifty dollars worth of crop that we give away, right? So those guys don't like using that tool. <laughs> <laughs> they don't like to know what they're throwing yeah, over. Exactly. Right. They don't so, want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Um well great. You know what? Uh, there's a couple more questions. We'll try to get some here quick. Mike, tissue testing, what's the proper timing on pulses? This is from Barry. Barry's asked some great questions today. Thanks, Barry. Yeah. You know what, if I was going big time, I'd be tissue testing 
uh, about uh, six, seven node, or maybe even before, if I'm going with a foliar spray, I would be going, uh, going before that spray so I could add any nutrients in a herbicide application. I would be going before, two weeks before I'm expecting my first blossom to appear. Would be where yeah. I would go in, into that. I would be on. I would be doing it on the upfront part because the later you go, the less you can do in terms of really yeah. having an impact on on the progression uh, of this. And the one point I did want to make for many farmers, you know, we talk about nodes on 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 peas, and a lot of guys miss the timing because they don't count the nodes. The plant can be really really small and have five and six nodes. And you think, well, it's just a small little plant, but it's already in the node stages. So you got to count the nodes. You got, you know, the, I, 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 I'm starting to say this, you know, the harder you look, the more you find. But if you don't look, you're missing the boat. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, one last question. Lagus ah. concern on Fabus from John. It's a big deal. Uh, it's there. It's important to, to monitor and watch, especially just after flowering, early pod. They can do a lot of damage, and and you know it could cost you a lot of money because uh, it, it's a big grading factor. Um, it's, yeah. Monitor. webinar on, on lagus and fava beans. I worked on thirty <laughs> years ago before anybody even knew what was going on. They're very difficult to control in fava beans, but I know exactly what happens uh, to them and. Is something we got to work on if we're going to have commercial fabric. Now, Saskatchewan, Alberta has real bad lagus, and I think you guys in northern Manitoba, most yep. of Saskatchewan doesn't have a big lagus problem, and that's a great place to grow fabus. I think it's just a matter yeah. of fact. We saw all the canola we grow here; they're just there's a lot of lagus around, so it, they, they seem to be more related to the Aspen Parkland kind of area, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. I mean, they outbreak from time to time, but they're more resident residential there. It's another topic. Yep. Okay. We're gonna we will have this podcast recorded and we I skipped over some of Megan's slides on Fabas, which Brian says the redheaded stepchild, but there's some great <laughs> research on fungicide with Fabas. Uh Gosling's asking about inches of water to grow Fabas in season. I think Ryan could speak to that, you know, in a year with good moisture. The potential is significantly higher. They need water, probably like peas. I don't have that answer. Mike might be able to answer that after in, in the response section. August, but, August uh, rains, a lot like soybeans. Big, it's a big, huge deal. Okay. Yeah. 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 So August rain for fabas like soy. Is if we get it, yep. yields can go up 10, 15, 20 bushel an acre. Great. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, with that, Again, thanks everybody for coming on. I enjoyed the conversation and, uh, you know, lots of questions. We will, anyone, any question we missed, we'll try to answer it after and, and uh, we'll send that out to the attendees. The podcast will be posted so you can watch it in its entirety if you're just listening today. So maybe look at some of the reference to the, uh, the webinar slides that we, we showcase. So uh, again, Ryan and Megan, thank you very much. Your input's uh, been tremendous and you know we look forward to working with you moving forward hopefully there's some thoughts on on protein that will come in the survey that you can leverage too in some of your research moving forward so so with that thanks for coming on and, and thanks everybody for joining us today and, and sticking with us for a little bit longer so uh, uh again uh, weather's improving and 
get outside and enjoy it while you can uh, before spring comes. So Great. take care. Talk to you Thanks, soon. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Craig. You bet.